Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Kevin Dibley begins a new series, From Brokenness to Blessing, Into the Heart of God. The life of Abraham is a fascinating one because, as we will see, Abraham's journey was not so much a journey to the land of Canaan, but actually a journey towards heaven. His destination is not so much an earthly one, but a spiritual one. It's a journey of a fatherless and airless man into the presence and promise of God. It's a journey into the very heart of God. God takes a broken family and a broken man and shows him that he'll make him a father of many nations, who reflects the very heart of God the Father himself. This is an invitation to you all to bring your brokenness and join us in our study of the life of Abraham. May the story of Abraham's journey from brokenness to blessing become the story of all who find the hope of God by faith as he did. Let's worship together. Well, thanks, worship team, and thanks, uh, Ralph, for that prayer. We're actually going to uh, one of the tough passages of Scripture today in Genesis chapter 18, and I was just praying with Ralph, uh, again, just so you know, thanks to Andy, he's worked hard to have all of this uh, recorded separately, so I'm the only one uh, here at this time, but I get to hear everybody what they've done and just heard Ralph pray, and uh, I like the line in Ralph's prayer where he said, may this verse, what he was talking about, Scotty Smith's verse that he was quoting, may it be a kiss rather than a kick. And uh, sometimes when you come to hard passages of Scripture, you're afraid you're going to get a kick. But um, what we need to see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is the fact that although the world is under the wrath of God and um, progressing in its wickedness, there is the hope of the gospel in this. And so for you and I, as we read this section of Scripture, take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 18, uh, verses 16 and following. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Let's just continue to pray that God would um, sober us, but sober us so that he might comfort us, um, that he might help us take our sins seriously so that as we come to Easter, the message of Easter might be a greater joy to us. Because here's the great news, I'm just going to put it up front right now, that we all deserve Sodom and Gomorrah, and Christ took Sodom and Gomorrah in our place. Isn't that good news? That's great news to hear today, that Jesus Christ has stood in our place, and that that scorching fire that comes down from heaven to consume our wickedness and to take the wrath of God has been placed upon him. And that's the great news of the gospel. So let's read through this with uh, sobriety and with comfort. And then let's spend a few moments this morning um, thinking on it together. And so in uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, after... Uh, Abraham has feasted with God and had this great uh, meal and Sarah has laughed and God has confronted her. We come to verse 16 where it says, Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So there's the shift. And I, I shared last week, I just want to stop, that the structure of chapter in eight, 18 and 19 is a chiastic structure. And you really see it here as they make their way towards Sodom. And at the end of chapter 19, we'll see Abraham looking towards Sodom. And so you have this structure where this whole section is about God bringing 
judgment upon Sodom. And so that's where it turns right here. And it says, And Abram went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So you see there in this passage of Scripture an impending judgment, yet the covenantal promise of salvation in Abraham side by side. And that's how the Bible reads, right? Judgment and salvation side by side. And so it says in verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So the Lord is saying, Shall I speak to Abraham about these things? The, the friend of God according to uh, the book of James. And so God says, Because he's got plans for Abraham. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And you know, um, I just want to pause here and say once, one of the things you see uh, in the Bible is regularly that there are messengers going from earth to heaven. Obviously the Lord sees what's going on. But there is the rumbling within the heavens that something is profoundly wrong on earth. And I, again, I just want to say, we, we feel that at times on earth, even now in the world. Right now, things are awry. The rumblings of a world that's turned from God. So it says in verse 22, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And so the three who had come... The two angels and the Lord now part. The angels go towards Sodom. Abraham stays with the Lord. Then, the Abra then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Here Abraham begins to wrestle with God. You're going to destroy. He knows what's coming. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wrestles. Will you let the righteous and the wicked perish side by side? And he wrestles with the character of God, this is not like you. Shall the judge of all the earth, the end of verse 25, shall the judge of all the earth do what is just, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And of course, Abraham begins his negotiation strategy. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord uh, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And again, Abraham spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. 
Then, verse 30 says, he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And so you and I see that Abraham has been brought into fellowship with God. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God allows His people. He peels back what is often hidden. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us that we might walk in them. I don't know how many times in my life I've been thankful that I didn't know what I knew after, what I knew before. Haven't you had that situation? What I didn't know before. Thank, I'm thankful that I'm not God. I'm thankful that I don't see the things that God sees. But every once in a while, and the Bible is a revelation of God allowing His people, sometimes, especially as you make your way through prophetic sections and even in the New Testament to the book of Revelation, you can hear the distant thunder of horses' hooves. You can hear the wrath and the judgment of God coming. You can see it and anticipate it. But sometimes it's in real time, as we see here, that God unfolds to Abraham what he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and even for us, you know, it becomes one of the most difficult texts of Scripture. Uh, we read the Bible and, and we have to deal with the fact that we have a God of wrath who deals with injustice. Now, there's conflict within us, right? Because we live in a world that's constantly pleading for justice. And it's just contradictory justice. We want justice for the things that offend us, but we don't want justice in the things that don't offend us. We want God to deal with people who have wronged us, but we don't want God to deal with us and how we've wronged people. We have differing measuring scales. But we hear in the Bible at times, and we see at times, that God is moving steady towards a day of judgment. And even in the New Testament, Jesus will reference back to this text, we'll see this in a bit, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will reference that there is a day coming that will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And he holds that out, not simply to throw vain, angry threats, but to call people to turn and to repent and to trust in him. But sometimes as we're watching, we see under, you know, you have the, you have the, the, the gospel glasses on. You read the Bible and you realize that in the scriptures we are told in Timothy that there will be a progressive hardening of people where, where people will no longer want to hear the word of God but they want their ear, uh, itching ears tickled that people will become rebellious against their parents there's this progressive evil and then you begin to watch it happen in the culture around you and as things begin to unfold you start to think in your heart oh God what are you up to and here's one of the things that can happen sometimes is that as we encounter as Christians in times of difficulty, our own personal partnership, we, we're part of the world. We suffer alongside of the world. There can be this nagging thought, maybe God's punishing me. Maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God's wrath is for me. 
um, this last week. Every every month I have the opportunity to write for the Victoria Gazette, and um, this week, uh, since Linnea Bardo is working with us and she's taking a writing course, I said, Linnea, why don't you write uh, an article for the Gazette for Easter? And so I, I had her write an article this week, and what Linnea did was talk about the struggle of this last year with COVID and everything shutting down for her and some of the emotional struggles that, um, that the weight of this has happened to her. She talked about having dance um, garments still left in the box because she's a ballet dancer not being able to dance. And she talks about her, grad, her prom dress as a, as a senior coming to graduate still hanging in the closet and one event after another shutting down and that's happened for a lot of our young people just one event after and there can be this little voice you know when something personal happens that goes wrong you begin to ask the question god are you punishing me and the beauty of Linnea's article leading up to Easter is that god does not punish his people God has placed the punishment on Jesus Christ. And the great message of Good Friday is that Christ has borne the penalty and the wrath of God on Himself for our sins so that we would never bear it. But that doesn't mean God doesn't let us see the hardship and the suffering and what, uh, what's going on as He prepares so that we might feel the weight of judgment. And so here's the question I want us to ask this morning. When it seems like the world has gone off the cliff of evil, when it seems, as Romans chapter 1 says, that the reason the world has gone off is not because wrath is, is, is going to come, but wrath has already come. Romans chapter 1 says, the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The turning away from God is actually justice. It's judgment. It's a handing over. What do we do with that? And I, and I want us to see a couple of things in this text of Scripture because in this passage of Scripture, God invites Abraham into this experience. What does Abraham do with this knowledge? This knowledge which is too great for him in one sense to bear. The weight, see, here's, here's the difficulty of the weight of leadership for him. That having become the father of many nations is not simply a light thing for him, but now there's a responsibility because through him and the generations that follow, it is their covenant with God that will sustain them. It's the promise of God. And Abram, the father, now has a responsibility to declare the need of the gospel, the hope of the promise, the covenant with God. So here are a couple of things I want you to think about this morning, and I hope as we do so that it might be helpful, not just that you might feel the weight of it, but you know, might know what to do with the weight of a world that's under the wrath of God, waiting for judgment, that you might feel the weight of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. So here's my first point this morning looking at Abraham, and it may sound like a dumb statement, but I like this statement. I said, don't just do something, stand there. That's the first thing. You know, one of the significant things in this passage of Scripture is that Abraham, when he is called to do this, stands there and looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll show you structurally in the text of Scripture um, when God says to him, Shall I show Abraham what I'm about to do? 
Abraham doesn't turn his eye away. We like to do that, right? We just rather bury our head in the sands, pretend, cut ourselves off from the world, not feel the pain of what's going on, not know the problems that are there, turn up the, tu- the news, turn up the... I think we should do a lot of that more than we do, but the reality is we need to feel the weight of the brokenness and the difficulty and the darkness of the world so we might feel the urgency of the gospel. We might feel the urgency of the gospel. So I've got two points here. I, uh, under this don't just do something, stand there. I say watch so you can weep and watch so you can warn. And I think you need to have both of those. Watch the wickedness and feel it and warn the next generation to flee in and hi- flee in and hide in flee to I should say and hide in Jesus Christ. And so um, I want you to take a look at this uh, passage of scripture. Go to verse 22, and it says, "So the men turned from there." After the Lord has said to Ab- shall I reveal to Abraham what I'm going to do? It says the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. You you want to read it, Abraham stood still. But what it means is he stood there as it began to unfold. Now I want you to go um, to verse 27 of Genesis 19. Because this is the bracketing parallel Because you're meant to see that it's interesting when you go to chapter 19, verse 27, after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, where do we find Abraham? We find Abraham standing in the same place he is here. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So we know in this section of Scripture that Abraham is standing with the Lord in the presence of the Lord in chapter 18. And it's a significant moment because when we get to the end of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction in chapter 19, it says he went back to the same place, but this time all he saw was smoldering ruins. You feel the weight of that? You feel what's going on there with Abraham? Abraham is standing and hearing and processing what the Lord is saying to him. Now let me, let me just go back to the question in chapter 17 where the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I, I want to remind you, this is a sign of unique communion between the Father and Abraham. This is a, a sign of Abraham's friendship with the Father. He's bringing him in to the weight the weight of what God is doing. Because you, need, you and I need to understand, no one feels the weight of human's wickedness like God does. And He knows, our Father, already in this text, what the cost of this is going to be for His Son. And now you have the Father. And I want you to get this in this head because this, in your heads because this will be here later for Abraham in the story of the life of Abraham where God will pull Abraham and give Abraham a tangible feel of what this feels like for God. That's what's going on here. 
you remember when Abraham takes Isaac up on, the, on Mount Moriah? And why does God force him to walk through all those steps? Because he's giving him, a, his friend, a feel of what's actually going on in the heavenlies. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit feeling the true weight of human sin and yet the depth of God's justice and mercy coming together. Isn't that powerful? And so it's important on Sundays that you just stop. What should I do when I come to texts like Sodom and Gomorrah? Stand still. Let it fall upon you. Now listen, I want you to go to that text in verses 18 and 19 because it's important for us to see what God is doing here with Abram. He says, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? And then he gives the reason. Seeing that Abram shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So we're pausing here and realizing he's not showing Abraham because Abraham isn't going to receive the promise. He's bringing Abraham into the gospel story, the meta narrative, the big story of what he's about to do. But listen to the next line. He says, For I have chosen him, why? That he might command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised them. What's going on here? He, as, a, as the great father, he's talking about the father of many nations, and he's saying to Abraham, I've got a job to do. Being a father is a weighty responsibility. Being a, a dad is a heavy responsibility. And I am going to have you see what I'm about to do so that this would leave an indelible mark upon your hearts so you might plead with your children, stay, don't chase idols. I've been reading the book of Judges. It's unbelievable how prone to wander we are. God, how prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I read the, the, the story of Gideon, and you read Gideon, you know, God using Gideon and, and doing marvelous things for Gideon. At the end of Gideon's story, he makes a, an ephod, and all the people go into idolatry at the end of his story. And you go, what? You know, you read the life of Solomon, and, and you see all of this, and you go, what is going on here? And what God is saying is, Abraham... You are going to have to say to people, flee the wrath to come. And you hear it in Jesus in His teaching. You hear it in the Apostles' teaching that one of the activities of, of loving fatherhood, a loving spiritual fatherhood, of discipling someone, is to bring them weight and say, take a look at where this world is going. You know, today, <laughs> if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. There's a weightiness and so what he's doing is he's pulling him into his fatherly love. And he's saying, Abraham, take a look. I want you to watch this and never forget. And sometimes the Lord does that for us. Like, he did that to me as a young man. As a young man, I was driving home after work on a Saturday. And I was coming along the highway and there on the road was a motorcycle accident. And I, when I got to the accident, it was a friend of mine was dead on the road and uh, I was going home from work he was on his way to, for the afternoon shift he'd gone home for lunch and on that moment I'm standing there seeing something I never want you know and there are times in your life you're going why do I have to see this and the Lord was working in my heart this you may have today 
This may be the day. And He was imparting on me an indelible mark I've carried all my life, not because He doesn't love me, but because He wants me to flee to the only One who can save me. Because, you know, there is a choice, as Moses says. I lay before you life and death. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. We need to feel and to hear that. So let me just show you about how the Bible teaches what leadership is. Leadership has many qualities all the way through the Bible. Leadership has weightiness to it. It is weightiness to it. As you make your way through Scripture, you realize, Paul says in Corinthians, he says, and above all the suffering I experience, there is on my heart my constant concern for the church. I've told people before as a pastor, I've said, I, I would have given up this burden a long time ago if it wasn't sin. Who, Paul says it, who is sufficient for these things? Or not. Leadership has a watchfulness to us, to it. That we as believers, but as parents, when we have other people we're responsible, and the Bible says, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. As Christians, we have a watchfulness. We watch each other's lives to warn each other of danger. To seek, to say, beware of the enticements of the enemy, of the lies, the bitterness that gets in, the seduction that you're the only one. You know, the Bible has constant warnings. There's a watchfulness. I'm like a, 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 watch, a guard over a watchtower watching over the people. Leadership also has a willingness to it. This is, this is a key part of it. As Abraham stands there, Abraham is doing what I think Moses had to learn to do progressively, which is Moses didn't want the job at first, but he begins to love the people and suddenly you think what else would I do with my life you start to hear Paul say I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings what's he talking about he's talking about the gospel mission that God's given him to reach out to people and suffer that they might come all the nations might come to know Jesus Christ there's got to be a willingness. That's why Paul said, or Peter writes to uh, overseers. We're just appointing overseers. And, and Peter, you know, Peter the reluctant. Remember who Peter is, the reluctant uh, apostle? He wanted the power but not the pain. He wanted the crown and not the cross. But at the end of Peter's uh, first letter in chapter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He's a, he's a fellow sufferer, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. And you stop and you think here, you know, I'd say that, to dads. Dads, don't be reluctant. Yeah, you have to deal with kids and children and family struggles, but don't be reluctant to do it. What more can you do if, if one of your children flees the wrath to come? You feel the weight of what life is about. Waterbrook, feel the weight of what life's about. Right? Today is the day of salvation if you hear His voice. And leadership has a warningfulness 
to it. I, I, you know, one of the things about the New Testament is it's got the great news of the Gospel, but there are continual warnings all the way through the New Testament. Flee sin. Put to death sin. Run to the Gospel. Put your hope in Christ. Listen to some of these texts of Scripture. Romans chapter 11, 22-23. It says, Note then the kindness and severity of God. After going through 11 chapters of sin, Jews and Gentiles, and Israel's rejection of God, and God turning away the, the Gentiles. He says, notice the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's strong language, isn't it? Folks, take, take this seriously. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Don't look, don't turn, don't falter. Listen to how Jesus talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in Matthew chapter 11, 20 to 24. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his works had been done because they wouldn't repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to your Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Wow. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. If the mighty works that had been done in your day had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Wow. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom. We look at the... With, we stand there with... Abraham and look at the burning ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's and Jesus says if they would have seen me the Messiah if they would have heard of me if they would have watched me they would have repented and here you are claiming to be religious and will not bow the knee Peter in second Peter gives warnings at the end of his letter. He says, if God, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah there too. And in verse 4 to 10, he said, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's weighty, isn't it? And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows, good news, how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see the two sides of the gospel? There's a lot more that could be said there. But here's the reality. We, we're called to admonish one another that this life is serious. Sin is serious. God is eternally serious about our sin. But salvation is glorious. You know, we have to... They, 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 teach in, they actually teach in secular psychology one of the dangers of not teaching your kids right and wrong, that there are consequences, is that you're kids just go off personally go off the deep end it's a loving act to warn them 
Listen to what Dr. Leonard Sachs, a child development psychologist, said in an article called Collapse of Parenting. Kids are not born knowing right and wrong. This is an article in 2016, January 2016. It says, he says, kids are not born knowing right or wrong. He said, pointing to longitudinal studies showing that children who are left to discover right from wrong on their own, own are more likely to have negative outcomes in the future. That child in their late 20s is much more likely to be anxious, depressed, less likely to be gamefully employed, less likely to be healthy, more likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol. We know this, he says. Parents who are authoritative have better outcomes. And it's a larger effect than the effect of race, ethnicity, household income, or IQ. Now, what, what's, what does that tell us? It, it tells us that it's loving to warn people. It's loving to stay and feel the weight of it, to let others feel the weight of it. Andy gave me this quote. Um, I don't know if he thought I was going to use it, but I am using it. He sent me this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Ultimately, the only thing which is going to drive a man to Christ and to make him rely on Christ alone is a true conviction of sin. Isn't that true? So what should we do when we see the world going off the deep end and we see the, what evil is capable of doing and the progressive development of, it seems, the wrath of God upon humanity? Stand like Moses. Or stand like Abraham. Don't do anything. Stand there. Feel the weight of it and weep over it and then warn to the people around you, flee the wrath to come. Now having said that, that's not all you do. So my first point is don't just do something. Stand there. Now once you've stood there and you take it in, don't just stand there, do something. <laughs> so here's the other side of it. Don't just stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. Take it in. Feel the weight of it. And then don't just stand there. Do something. So what does Abraham do in, in this text of Scripture? He draws near to God. That's one of the phrases for prayer for us. So it says in verse 23, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? And then down 25, he's pleading the character of God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth... Does he know God is the judge of all the earth? That's what Sodom is about to find out. But it's not just, he's not just the judge of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the judge of what? All the earth. Everyone. Hebrews says it's appointed man for man once to die, then the judgment. Every one of us will stand before the Lord. And Abraham goes and he pleads with the Lord. So here's what we see. Intercede that God may intervene. Right? That's what he does. He pleads with God to have mercy. But he not only pleads on the mercy of God, he actually appeals to the justice of God. Hear the language that's here? The language is his pleading is not simply, oh God, don't be so hard on them. God, don't be... He, he, he pleads the justice of God. You, God. God, you're a just God. How, if there's a right, somebody righteous out there, will you let the righteous die with the unrighteous? And so then he begins to do this negotiation with God. 
And it's, it's helpful for us to listen to him pray. He starts out and says, if there's 50 righteous, will you let them go down with the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah? And then God says, no, of course not. I'm a just God. And then Abraham goes, well, will you destroy a city if it's just because of five? Like if, if there were five less? Would you destroy the whole city? God says, no. There's 45. Righteous, I'll show mercy. And and Abraham, you you can see Abraham's standing there from his position. He knows. I think the, the cry of what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah has reached the heavens, but it's also reached everywhere else. It's like the world hears the wickedness of the world. 40? What if there were 40? Oh God, don't be impatient with me. What if there was only 30? What if there's only 20? What if there's only 10? God says if there's only 10, what will He do? He said, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What will stay? The wrath of God. The just wrath. Wrath of God against the real sin of humanity. What will stay it? And the argument is, he goes, 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 20 righteous, 10 righteous. Why does he stop there? I think he's given hope on what? That there's any righteous. There's anybody righteous. And I'll tell you this, that even though Peter points to Lot as righteous, groaning over the unrighteousness, it doesn't mean righteous and without sin. Of course, we'll see that in the story of Lot. But what we realize is there's, as Romans says, what? None that are righteous, no, not one. So here's the question. What could possibly keep God from destroying the entirety of all humanity? if we could only find even one righteous. So what's my question for you today? Is there one that's righteous? Remember John in the book of Revelation when they go to open the scrolls and there's no one that's found worthy to open the scrolls and he falls down and he starts to weep without hope and then the angel of the Lord calms him and he reminds him there is one who is worthy. Listen to some of these. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 said, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Got that? All men. He is the judge of all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. What's he saying here? Someone has been righteous. Someone has done something to supply righteousness and to remove wrath. Who is that righteous one? Tell me, who is it? It's Jesus. It's the story. It's Abraham's seed. That's why he's the father of many, because his seed, Jesus Christ, is the righteous one from whom the wrath of God will be removed. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made the righteous one, him who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become what? 
the righteousness of God. Oh, we have someone to plead. Someone to plead to and someone to confess to and someone to plead for us. First John says this, if we confess our sins, not that God is merely merciful, He's faithful in what? Just. To forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We stand in prayer like Abraham. Oh God, would you spare a people? Oh, I'll spare a people if you can find one righteous one who will stand in their place. And so John writes, and he is the propitiation for our sins. You know what that means? The wrath that was poured on Sodom and Gomorrah has been poured on the Son of God. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world. The cross is our Sodom and Gomorrah. The wrath of God poured on our Son in His place. The all-consuming, sin-scorching sacrifice of Christ who destroyed all sin once and for all. It is finished. Completely righteous and forgiven in the Son. Not only is Christ our substitute who takes our wrath, Christ is our greater Abraham. You need to think about this. Because we look in this story and who's standing there interceding? Abraham. Who's he interceding for? <laughs> for those in Sodom and Gomorrah who might need saving. But let me ask you this. Who stands and looks down upon our world? Looks down upon your life and your sin? Isn't it the seed of Abraham? Jesus Christ who now lives and stands and has borne and holds up his nail-pierced hands, his pierced side and said, it is finished, paid in full. So we're told regularly about this in Hebrews, but listen to this from Hebrews chapter 9. I'll just give you some highlights from chapter 9, verse 24, 26, and 28. Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about that. Right now, high and lifted up, not just over Sodom and Gomorrah, over all the nations, over all time, over all the peoples, is Jesus the Christ. And he says, later the writer says, but as it is, he appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He sacrificed himself at the end of the ages so that now he might stand up and intercede and plead for us and plead the justice of God. And it says later, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, waiting for him. That's what Easter's about. That's what Linnea was writing in her article. What, what she was writing there is, when I go into the room and I feel like, God, are you punishing me? The answer from the right hand is, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Christ Jesus who died. <laughs> Made atonement for our sins. Right? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? If God is for us, who will be 
against us. We plead the blood of Jesus. We plead the, the cross of Christ. We cry out in the name of the, ato- the, the righteous one who has made propitiation for our sins. Let me ask you this question. I, I want to warn you today. If you have been trusting in yourself, if you've been slumbering in your sin, if you've been joining the world in the, in, the, in the unrighteousness and the idolatry, today hear the voice of God. Turn. Flee the wrath that is to come. For there is one who has borne the wrath, who has interceded for you. And if you confess your sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is a great message. It's sobering, but it's saving. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Let's pray together. And so, Heavenly Father, as we read this text of Scripture, You have put it so that we might feel the weight, that we might weep over sin, that we might warn others to turn to Christ, to run to Christ, and that we might rejoice together that You so loved the world that You gave Your only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh God, come and save. Come and make us sober that we might warn. Thank you, O oh God, that there is a way out of Sodom and Gomorrah in the vessel of Jesus Christ and the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.